Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 11. We're going back to the Gospel of Luke. I enjoyed being at Living Hope Community Church last week. They send their greetings. Art and I agreed that the reason we go to one another's churches is to make our own congregations appreciate us more. Um, I heard that while Art was... While I was figuratively melting down at Living Hope, I heard Art was literally melting uh, last week, and so he, uh, we had some good, uh, we enjoyed being at each other's churches, but I think we're both glad to be back uh, where we're a little more comfortable, literally and figuratively sometimes. But um, again, greetings from Living Hope. They're, they're doing well. It's such a joy to, to have that, that sister church in Bartonville, and the saints there are just, just doing some great things for the Lord. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 11. I encourage you to turn there with me. And also, again, just encourage you to look at your bulletins this week. And there's just so many neat things going on in our church this week. Things beginning uh, Sunday evening service tonight, Be Mom, counseling, Awana, just a great, great opportunities for our church this, this week and this fall. It's going to be a neat year by God's grace, Lord willing. Well, if you're there, Luke 11, uh, please stand with me if you're able. In honor of God's word, as we read Luke 11, beginning in verses, uh, verse 29 through verse 32. Luke tells us, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation." The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading and and proclamation of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask for our hearts to be attuned toward you. Uh, we're mindful today is a very important day in the life of the country in which you've placed us. We're reminded of just the fr- how fragile life is and how wicked the world is and how our only hope is found in the good news of your son, Jesus. And Father, in this country in which you've placed us, allow us to be ambassadors of that good news of Jesus Christ. In whatever context you've placed us, whatever location you've placed us, help us to proclaim that we all likewise deserve to perish except for your grace. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. A few weeks ago, I, was, uh, I saw a link to an article on the internet entitled, The Top 50 Tough Questions Christians Can't Answer, or 50 Tough Questions Christians Can't Answer, and the title intrigued me, kind of an audacious claim, and so I, I clicked on the link and tried to find out what are these 50 questions, these tough 50 questions that I as a Christian can't answer, and I read the article and, and found that the questions kind of fell into three categories of questions. One category of questions were questions that indeed were, were difficult questions. I believe that Christianity obviously has an answer to them, but they were legitimately tough questions, questions dealing with like the existence of evil, 
You know, if, how did evil enter the world, and how can a, a just God have created a universe in which evil entered into it? And you think about 9-11 and today as we're celebrating this 10th anniversary, and you say, you know, that is a tough question. How is God glorified through evil, and, and how is God going to deal with evil? That, that's a legitimately tough question. Another category of questions that were in this article were, were questions that I think revealed a lack of understanding about Christianity, just, just basic misunderstanding of what we teach about God and the gospel. For example, one of the questions was something like, if an old lady who was a very sweet old lady and was, uh, had been good enough to get to heaven was driving in her car and uh, collided with another car and, and said a bad word before she uh, perished in this car accident, wouldn't it be really mean of God to send her to hell? And what does that question say? Well, it says a person doesn't really understand the gospel, right? They don't understand what Scripture teaches about how a person can have a right relationship with God through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And so many of the questions just were, frankly, revealing an ignorance of Christianity. But then there was a third category of questions in this article, the top 50 tough questions Christians can't answer. And this third category of questions revealed a certain thought process. For example, one of the questions was, um, if God is the God of Scripture, the God Christians say they believe in, if, if He's so all-powerful, why does he allow his followers to sin? Or if the God of Scripture is the true God, why does he allow children to have any diseases and suffer? Or if the God of Christianity is the true God, why doesn't he just, uh, in his might and in his power, reveal himself to every person individually and say, hey, I'm God? Okay. You see the thought process behind this third category of question? It begins with this premise, I believe God should do X, fill in the blank. I believe that God should heal all children, or I believe that God should reveal himself to everyone, or I believe that there should be more rainy days if God is God, or I believe there should be fewer rainy days if God is God. I believe God should do X, fill in the blank. And then the thought process goes, I believe God should do whatever this is. And, and then I look around and God isn't doing what I think he should be doing. Whatever sign I believe should be in existence because there's a God, I don't see that sign. There's too many rainy days or, or not enough rainy days or, or children are still sick or God isn't revealing himself the way I believe he should. And then the last part of the thought process is because God isn't doing X, X isn't happening, I doubt God. Let me suggest to you this morning that each of us, or at least most of us, are guilty of this line of thinking to one degree or another. We believe God should do X, perform whatever sign, operate in whatever way we believe that he should. That doesn't happen, and we at times doubt him. We doubt his existence. We doubt his goodness. We doubt his power. We believe God should do certain signs. He doesn't do those signs, and so we doubt. And the question I want you to kind of mull over this morning in your hearts is, how should I respond to that? What does that reveal about my heart as I doubt God? Let me 
throw out two scenarios to you that I think will help us before we turn to the text here. Scenario number one happened some time ago. I was talking to a young man, and we were sitting at a table, and we're talking about some decisions that he'd made with his life. And he said, you know, I, I've made these decisions. I'm, I'm comfortable with these decisions that I've made. And I, I struggled with whether I was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. And I, I asked God for uh, guidance, and I didn't like some of the answers I found in Scripture. And so I decided to pursue this sinful lifestyle. It's a decision I've made, and I, I, I'm going to stay there. I said, well, let's talk about what Scripture says. And so we opened God's Word together, and, and we saw what what God's word said, and I pointed him to the person of Jesus Christ. I said, this is, what Jesus, this is who Jesus Christ is. This is how Jesus Christ wants you to live. And he said, pass. No thanks. He said, if God wants me to change, then God needs to appear to me and tell me to change. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two, Whitney and I, some time ago, a short while ago, were sitting across the table from a young woman who had just lost a family member, an older family member who, with whom she was very close. And, and this young woman was struggling with doubt as well. She said, I, I don't understand the character of God here and how he allows these things to happen. I don't understand the nature of death, and, and I don't understand where this person I love is right now. I don't understand God's plan here. I don't understand eternity. I don't understand the resurrection. I don't understand a lot of things. And, and, I'm, and as we talked more, she said, yeah, and I'm even struggling with some doubts. And so in that scenario, we also went to God's word, and we went to passages like 1 Corinthians 15, and we talked about the reality of the resurrection, and we talked about the person of Jesus Christ, who's the first fruit of the resurrection. We talked about who Jesus is and our hope in Jesus Christ. And as she encountered Christ in Scripture, her reaction was very different. She received comfort. And as she found Jesus as revealed in God's word, she found him to be lovely. Let me suggest to you this morning that even though many people will struggle with doubt, in fact, I would imagine in a room this size, this many people, there are some in here who have, frankly, very, very severe doubts about God. They believe that God should do something. God hasn't done that. And so as they, they think about these signs that should exist, if God is real or if God of, of uh, Scripture is real, they frankly are, are very precarious in their faith right now. Perhaps they say, I don't even have faith. God hasn't done what I want him to do. And there are others, perhaps, who are believers, and, and yet they, they do struggle sometimes as God doesn't do the signs that they believe that he should do. Let me encourage you this morning. As we see in this passage, our hope is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And my encouragement to you is to seek the Savior, not the signs. To seek the Savior, to find your peace and your joy and your comfort in the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture Jesus is going to address the, the quest for signs, and he's going to tell us something very important about the heart attitude that desires signs instead of a Savior. We're going to unpack that idea more, but that's the question, that's kind of the thoughts I want to begin with 
as we begin to look at this text. What we're going to do is just first we're going to talk about the text. We're just going to look at the text in verses 29 through 32, and then after we've talked through the text, at the very end I'm going to give you three principles. Let's begin looking at the text in verse 29. It says, uh, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. Let, let's stop there. and Let me just kind of make three observations about verses 29 and 30. Here in verses 29 through 30, we see the problem with seeking for a sign. The first thing I want you to note about this text is how Jesus rebukes the people. In fact, before we talk about that, let me remind you where we are here in Luke 11. In Luke 11, beginning in verse 14, Jesus has cast out a demon. And as he casts out a demon, some of the people are amazed and they respond the right way, but there's two other groups that respond in a wrong way. The first wrong response is uh, some people accuse Jesus of being in league and Satan, with Satan. They say, yeah, Jesus, you're able to do that, but you're able to do that because you have some sort of deal worked out with Satan. Jesus addresses that first wrong response. He says, that's, that's a ridiculous assertion. He says, let's assume that what you're saying is true, and I'm not part of establishing God's kingdom. I'm part of establishing Satan's kingdom. If that's true, then Satan would be working against himself. That doesn't make much sense. Therefore, the alternative must be true. I must be establishing God's kingdom. The kingdom of God has come upon you, and you better respond rightly to me. So he addresses that first wrong response to the casting out of the, of the demon first. But verse 16 in chapter 11, tells us about another wrong response. It says, others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, we don't know exactly what sign they wanted. Perhaps they didn't even know. Some have speculated that they wanted some sort of literal sign to appear in heaven. Maybe they wanted Jesus to change the constellations and spell out their name or something. We don't know. Some, they wanted some sign from heaven. Now, Jesus begins to address this second group of people here in verse 29, all the way through verse 32. What do we see in these two verses? The first thing we see again is that Jesus begins his response with a rebuke. What does he say? He says, this generation is an evil generation. Now, uh, here's a hint. Uh, whenever Jesus is talking to you, uh, you don't want him to talk to you about, you, you don't want him to refer to you as being part of a generation. Most of the times in Scripture that Jesus says you're part of a generation or God says you're part of a generation, he isn't saying, hey, you're part of like the cool generation. <laughs> He's usually talking about something very negative. Let me give you some examples. Deuteronomy 32, verse 5 Moses says that the people have dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Later in verse 20, quoting God, Moses says, uh, God said, I will hide my face from, the, from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there's no faithfulness. Jesus, earlier in Luke, Luke 7, 31, says, what shall I compare the people of this generation to? What are they like? And then he compares them to immature children playing in the marketplace, fickle. Chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus talks to them and says, you're a faithless and twisted generation. Later in this chapter, Luke 11, he'll say, uh, the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world will be charged against this generation. Luke 17, 25, 
Jesus says that he's going to be rejected by this generation. And then in Acts 2.40, Peter says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So when in Scripture, oftentimes, whenever you're identified with part of a generation, you're not being part of, identified with this, this cool group of kids or something. You're saying, look, you're part of this generation that lacks faith. And your lack of faith manifests itself in twisted thinking, perverse thinking. Your unbelief manifests itself in tangible ways. And so Jesus begins, the first thing I want you to see about these, about verse 29 and verse 30, the problem with signs, is that Jesus begins with a rebuke, identifying themselves as, identifying those people as part of a wicked generation, an evil generation. The second thing that I think it's important to note here is that Jesus says their evil is manifested in a particular way. They're part of this evil generation. Remember, it's an unbelieving generation. How is their unbelief manifested? Well, look again at the text. He says, it's an evil generation because it seeks for a sign. Seeks for a sign. It's, here's my claims about who I am. Instead of responding in faith, this generation responds with unbelief. Now, Sometimes it's not necessarily wrong to want verification that a person is whom they claim to be. In my house, my children enjoy the legend of the tooth fairy. And my children are under the delusion that I am the tooth fairy. For some strange reason, they believe that I, well, it's not totally strange. One time they did see the tooth fairy and uh, she was dancing up and down on my daughter's bed, uh, wearing my daughter's uh, princess crown and princess wings, and, uh, or at least something that looked very similar to hers, waving a wand. And they tell me, I wasn't in the room at the time, is my story, they tell me that she looked very similar to me. Um, so what my children have been doing is trying to verify that the tooth fairy is who she says she is through various signs. And maybe I've mentioned this before, but I went into my son's room some time ago and, and was, was shaking him. It's just about, I don't know, midnight or so, and he, he wakes up and he said, well, what's going on? I said, the tooth fairy is looking for your tooth. She's very tired and would like to go to bed, and uh, so I'm, I'm here as her representative. And with groggy, you know, sleep in his eyes, kind of just kind of looking at the, the light was a little bright, he goes, I hid it to see if she can find it, Dad. <laughs> well, fine, kid, go back to sleep. I'm sure she'll be able to find it. So he goes back to sleep, and I wake him a short time later. The tooth fairy is really ticked off, boy. <laughs> Where is your tooth? I hid it in my underwear. The tooth fairy's not paying for that. She does. We'll call it even. So sometimes it's legitimate to uh, question the veracity of some, who someone claims to be, right? My kids aren't totally, I'm not, I'm not admitting anything, I'm not stating anything, I'm just saying they're probably right to seek some signs there. Although the hiding the teeth is getting really old. But I will say this too. There are times when seeking a sign would be highly insulting, right? A person you know very well asking for some more identification. Imagine you come home from, from work and your spouse is there and, and uh, your spouse says, hey, nice to see you today. May I see some ID, please, before I let you in my home? Well, that'd be highly insulting. Like, well, what, here's my driver's license, but, uh, well, I need, you know, anything, you have a passport? 
you would have the, the verification, but, but in reality, uh, their, their knowledge of you would be a greater sign than some sort of a document that you are whom you claim to be. But Jesus is saying something more here. He's not just saying it's foolish to ask for a sign. He's saying it's what? It's not just foolish, it's what? It's evil. Why is it so evil to ask for a sign? What's well, the third thing I want us to think about as we look at these two verses? Jesus says, only the sign of Jonah will be given to this generation. Verse 30, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. It's not just foolish to ask for a sign, it's evil. And it's evil, Jesus says, because a sign has already been given, the sign of Jonah. Now, what is the sign of Jonah? I want us to look at three texts together to help us understand what the sign of Jonah is and why it's so terribly evil that these people are asking for an additional sign. The first passage I want us to look at is a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 38 this, this parallel passage begins. Verse 39, Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then here's the sign, verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is the Son of Man, God incarnate, dying on the cross and raising from the dead. The sign of Jonah is the most important person in all of human history, in all the universe, engaging in the central redemptive act of humanity, the cross and the resurrection. Let's look at another passage. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 what does Paul say? Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance, of primary importance, what I also received. And what does Paul say is of primary importance, first importance? What's the, the big news of the gospel of God, the good news of Jesus Christ? He said it's this, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul says the central message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. And a person needs to accept that as true and place one's faith in the person of Jesus Christ because of that truth in order to be saved. One more passage I want to talk about, and then we're going to bring all this together. We're going to see why it was so incredibly evil for these people, not just, not just foolish, not just dumb, but evil. We're going to see why it was so evil for them to ask for an additional sign. One more passage is in the book of Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. And here in Colossians chapter 1, we see some incredible truths about the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Paul tells us in verse 15. When we see Jesus, we're seeing God. 
By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 19, for in Jesus, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The sign that was going to be given to this generation was Jesus Christ, God himself incarnate, engaging in the central act of human history, our redemption through Jesus Christ's blood, God's blood. And the people of this generation were going to look at the, at the most at the, at the most amazing, the most uh, prominent sign that a person could possibly receive, they're going to see the most glorious God engaged in the most glorious and terrible act in history, and they're going to see that and go, eh, what else you got? That's blasphemous, and it's evil. In fact, what else could God give them that they would respond to that would not pale in comparison to the matchless glory of Jesus Christ? What other sign could a person possibly want? Imagine you have the stars in the sky, the constellation, spell out your name, Daniel Bennett, repent. Place your faith in Jesus. No more Orion, Pleiades. Now all the constellations in the entire visible sky are a personal message to me. And let's say that I responded to that message. I would be responding to something far inferior to Jesus Christ. Do you believe that to be true? Imagine, whatever. just think, whatever sign is it, what do you, what do you want from God? What do you want from God this morning? Maybe you want to be eating a bowl of Cheerios one morning and have the little Cheerios begin singing and dancing and, and saying, believe in Jesus. That's, that's, your, that's what you want. That would pale in comparison to the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture. Uh, look at Colossians. Uh, imagine, what does Colossians 1 say? The stars, the constellations are the image of the invisible God. Dancing Cheerios are the image of the invisible God. No, those things are far inferior to Jesus Christ. And it's evil to seek for signs when, when you have the Savior because you're diminishing the value of Jesus Christ. That's the problem with signs. Now, let's look at the next two verses here. Verses 31 and 32. We see something else kind of interesting. Verse 31, Jesus says, okay, here's what's going to happen to you guys. <laughs> he says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Now, now who's, who's the queen of the south? Who is this, this queen of the south? Let me turn back to 1 Kings here just for a minute. You want to turn there with me as well? That'd, that'd be fine. You don't... 1 Kings chapter 10. Remember, we are in Ruth. It's right after First and Second Samuel. Then you have First, 
Ruth, First and Second Samuel, and you have First Kings. First Kings chapter ten describes the visit of the Queen of Sheba to Solomon. In First Kings chapter ten, it says the the Queen of Sheba. Now Sheba is uh, south of Saudi Arabia, kind of uh, in modern day Yemen. She heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of, of the Lord, concerning the name of Yahweh. And so what did she do as she heard about Solomon's fame and about the presence of Yahweh in Israel? It says that she came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, <clears throat> she told him all that was on her mind. So she comes to Solomon, she hears about Yahweh there, and she makes this some 1,200-mile journey to see Solomon for herself. She tells him everything that she's thinking. And then Solomon answers all her questions. There's nothing hidden from him. She sees all his wisdom, verse 4. She, she sees his, his possessions, verse 5. And then in verse 6, she responds and she says, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. She goes further, in fact. She says, Behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Then listen to the God exaltation here. Blessed be Yahweh. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever, because Yahweh loved Israel forever, he has made you king. So this queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, comes, visits Solomon, beholds his wisdom, and responds with worship of God. Now, what does Jesus say? He says, look, at the day of judgment, the queen of Sheba is going to be in the presence of God, worshiping God, and her very presence there is going to stand as a rebuke and a condemnation of you. She heard about Solomon. She traveled 1,200 miles to see him. When she found him and heard his word, she responded by worshiping Yahweh, and now something greater than Solomon is here, namely me. You didn't have to travel. God's revelation was given to you first. She, the queen of Sheba wasn't told that she had to travel, and yet she did. You have been told to respond to God. Someone greater than God is here, or greater than Solomon is here. You're beholding him, and you're rejecting him. You see the point? The issue isn't the nature of the sign, the greatness of the sign. The issue is the nature of the heart. He says the same thing about the men of Nineveh. Now notice both these groups, both these incidences from Israel's histories, he's describing Gentiles and their reaction to God's revelation. The men of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In Jonah chapter 3, we, we saw the response of the, the people of Nineveh. 
to to Jonah's preaching. In Jonah chapter 3, it says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And now, Jesus says, something greater than Solomon, is greater than the, the prophet Jonah is here, and you aren't responding to it. So we think about the sinful tendency of our hearts to demand signs from God. Let me give you three principles to help us as we seek the Savior and not the signs. The first principle is this. The first principle is pursuing truth is not evil. Pursuing truth is not evil. That's the first principle I think it's important for us to consider. You know, sometimes critics of Christianity will say, well, you know, you're just afraid of tough questions. In fact, I was reading one uh, woman who wrote this. She said, many Christians, certainly almost all fundamentalists, what does that term mean? Uh, Many Christians don't question because they are emotionally children who see life as terrifying and want daddy to break everything down into black and white rule lists that will govern their interpretation and responses. I wonder how she really feels. Uh, She says, if they encounter something that challenges their swallowed whole because daddy says it's true beliefs, they simply do not possess the information. The information never reaches the processing center of their brain. It's as though an entire circuit panel in their brains has been disconnected. Instead of having their stomachs stapled to prevent the receipt and processing of food, metaphorically, they've had their brains stapled. That's how she views Christians. It should not be the response of the Christian to say, look, uh, don't ask tough questions. I'm not even going to read an article called 50 Questions I Can't Answer because, man, I'm afraid I I can't. Uh, Christians, Christians should pursue the truth. They should be encouraging to people who ask tough questions about Christianity as they're seeking truth. But let me give you some thoughts here, kind of four thoughts as we think about pursuing truth. The first thought is this, uh, saturate yourself in God's truth. Uh, saturate yourself first and foremost in, in God's word and in God's truth. Uh, again, as I think about that article I read, uh, 50 tough questions or the top 50 tough questions that Christians can't answer. So many of those questions just revealed a, a, a basic uh, misunderstanding of the, the fundamental truths of Christianity. Some of the questions revealed kind of slight misunderstanding of, of more uh, difficult doctrines of Christianity. A person who's immersed in himself and saturated themselves first and foremost in God's truth is going to have the ability to pursue truth in a God-glorifying way. The second thing I'd encourage you with here is you, you pursue truth is to be aware of critical voices. Be aware of critical voices of Christianity. Sometimes our knee-jerk reaction when we hear people saying mean things about us or things that aren't true or things that are, are uh, distortions of what we believe, our, our tendency is to, to ignore those voices or shut those voices out. And, I, and I'm not saying, you know, just saturate yourself and people making fun of Christianity, but I am saying be aware of the voices that are speaking into your life, that are around you. Be aware of how your co-workers or people in your neighborhood or friends at school view Christianity. What are the voices that they're hearing? You know, what is it that they're watching on, uh, on PBS, on a special about religion? What are they saying about Christianity? 
what are people that are, that are interpreting the universe saying about the state of our world and our universe? It's important to hear those voices and be aware of them. It's important as a parent to know, what are my kids hearing from their friends about God and about morality? It's important to saturate yourself in truth, but it's also important, I believe, to be aware of the voices that are asking tough questions. Third thing I'd encourage you with here is to address those voices. And not with ad hominem attacks. Well, of course, you know, so-and-so is going to say that because they're a, they're a liberal or they're a whatever. Address the concerns of those voices that are speaking into your life, your friend's life, your co-workers' lives, your children's lives in a God-honoring, truth-saturated way. And fourthly, I'd encourage you to, to humble yourself and submit to God. We're talking about seeking a savior and not seeking signs. What we're not saying is that it's wrong to ask questions or it's wrong to be aware of questions. Humble yourself and pursue your savior, Jesus Christ. The second truth I think it's important for us to consider as we think about seeking the savior, not signs, is that seeking signs is evil. This is the second thing. Seeking signs is evil because it diminishes Christ instead of exalting him. What we're talking about now is, is a hard attitude that says, you know what, Jesus Christ is not sufficient for me. I want something else. I want X. I want uh, more rainy days. I want God to reveal himself through the constellations. I want God to reveal himself through, through healing someone. I want God to respond by, by making me taller or shorter or whatever. Seeking signs is evil because as we set our hearts upon the signs instead of the Savior, we're diminishing Christ, not exalting him. The purpose for which you and I were created is to worship and exalt Jesus Christ. As we seek whatever it is that we believe God should be doing, we are diminishing Christ instead of exalting him. Let me give you some signs let me give you some signs that you're seeking signs. Let me give you some thoughts about what it looks like to seek signs. Uh, number one, you can, know that you're, you can know that you're seeking signs if you have a prideful confidence in your own brilliance. Say, so, you know what, I, I'm the smartest guy I know, and these questions that I have are, are the questions that no human being has ever thought before. The, the thoughts that I'm thinking are just so glorious. <laughs> one time in high school, I was... I was sitting in my, uh, my, my parents' computer, and I was typing some sort of paper for something, and uh, uh, in my just pure uh, <laughs> pride and joy at my own brilliance of what I'd just written, I, I let out an audible explanation. I said, oh, I am an awesome genius. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, my dad was walking by at that exact moment and grabbed my neck pulled me down and gave me a good noogie and said, well, noogie, 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 Mr. Awesome Genius, <laughs> showing me who's, uh, who's what, what genius can get you. Uh, sign number one that you're seeking signs is that you have a prideful confidence in your own brilliance. The human heart is desperately wicked. Remember what Jesus says about this perverse generation. Their unbelief manifests itself in rejection of God. A second thing to look for is disdain for others. Not just an exaltation of self, but a disdain for other people. You know what, I, I'm smarter than all those whoever, all those liberals or all those conservatives or all those Christians or whatever. Another thing to, 
think through is, do I have, number three, do I have a dissatisfaction with God's word? You know, Isaiah says the person that God will look upon trembles at God's word. Number four, do you have a tendency to find Christ and his revelation insufficient? Do you have a tendency to see Christ and his revelation, number four, is insufficient? This past uh, week, my, my parents were here some of the time, and uh, Friday night, they, they came back from, from their, their trip. They'd taken the kids to Michigan. They came back to, to drop the kids off. Uh, it was debatable whether or not they would do that. And uh, as, as they, they were talking with us on Friday night, my, my dad was, was telling me about uh, some of the things that are going on with his health right now. And for those of you who don't know, my dad has uh, multiple myeloma, a form of cancer, and and uh, he's, been doing, he's been handling it in a very God-glorifying way. He said that he was talking with a co-worker who found out that he had cancer, and this, this co-worker said, so how, how are you coping with that? My dad said, you know what, I, I, I find that reading my Bible and finding the person of Jesus Christ as I read Scripture is, uh, is, is all that I need. It's, it's sufficient for me. And this person said, well, I have a book for you. <laughs> and my dad's thinking, did you hear what I just said? He said, I have this book for you, and he gave him a book. Now, I'm going to mention this book here, and some of you may have read it, and, and if, if I'm stepping on toes, um, send me an email. Love to hear from you. Uh, the, the book was called 90 Minutes in Heaven, 90 Minutes in Heaven by a guy named uh, Don Piper, not John Piper, Don Piper. Uh, and this book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, was uh, supposedly about a guy who died and, and went to heaven. Okay? Now, I don't know... Don Piper, I don't know, uh, I, I, actually a family member gave me the book, not my dad, someone gave me the book, and, and I, I have it in my home, I've flipped through it. Uh, there's another book that, that's very prominent right now called uh, Heaven, Heaven is for Real, about, supposedly about a little boy who died and, and went to heaven. And, uh, what I think these books have in common, for some people, is a tendency to say, you know what? what I find in Scripture isn't good enough for me. I need something more. I need to know that someone I can see now has died and gone to heaven. Now, first of all, I'm very skeptical about these books. You know, in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 12, Paul goes to the third heaven. He, t- he says, you know, I, I had this experience, and, and then he comes back and says, now let me write a book about it, doesn't he? No, he says, I'm not even going to talk about it. I'm not even going to tell you what happened. Look at 2 Corinthians 12 is where that happens. John in the book of Revelation is going to write some things down. He goes, eh, I was told not to write this down. So I'm skeptical of people that, that say that they've done something that Paul, the apostle Paul was nervous to do. But more important than that, I'm very concerned about a person that would say, I know that Jesus Christ made some claims about dying and res- being resurrected, but man, this little boy went to heaven, and that really gives me some confidence. Beware of seeking signs because it reveals a lack of appreciation for the person of Jesus Christ. It diminishes Christ instead of exalting him. Third thing, third principle I want us to think about here. Hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, number three, hearing the good news of Jesus Christ should result in worshipful repentance. Jesus says to these guys, look, you are an evil, wicked generation. Jonah, a guy 
that was, that was so, uh, so inadequate as a prophet that he cried over a, a, a plant that died instead of the people of Nineveh. A guy like that proclaimed a message to the people of Nineveh, and they turned in repentance. And now, I'm here in your midst. God himself, God in the flesh, is here. The sign of Jonah is going to be given to you by me, someone far greater than Jonah. I am going to die, be resurrected. And how are you going to respond to me? Brothers and sisters, my encouragement to you this morning is to reject the thought process that says, I believe God should do X, X hasn't happened, therefore I'm doubtful. Instead say, I want to know the person of Jesus Christ. And as I have these doubts about the presence of evil, or I have these doubts about the, the nature of the afterlife, or as I have these doubts about my ability to obey God in, in suffering, or as I have these doubts about my spouse, or I have my, these doubts about my friends, or I have these doubts about my kids, my sole source of comfort is going to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. That I'm going to, that instead we're going to say, I'm going to behold Jesus Christ and find him lovely and seek after him and count all other signs as worthless. I'm going to turn from a heart that desires things besides Jesus Christ and turn and find my full and complete and total satisfaction in my Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, my encouragement to you this morning would be to turn from whatever it is that you've been following instead. Say, you know what? That is sin. Instead, I want to behold and place my trust in Jesus Christ alone. And if you've never done that, my encouragement to you this morning would be to do that. If you have done that, if you've, become a, if you've been a believer, my encouragement to you would be to continue to behold the glory of of our Lord Jesus Christ and to seek him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus. We pray that our hearts would be focused on him, that we would desire nothing besides him. We'd find complete and total satisfaction in you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.